0: Uh, This is Ezra Vogel. I'm delighted to welcome you back to Critical Issues. Uh, We have a session today and then we'll have a session next week. Jim Millward, uh, who's been studying the the Xinjiang era, will talk to us about the Uyghur issue. And then we'll have a long vacation until late in January when we uh, resume at that time. Uh, But we're very lucky to have with us uh, today Ed Cunningham. Uh, And uh, Ed, uh got his start at Milton Academy in Chinese as a very young man. Uh, went to for a while, uh, developed the language. Uh, went to Georgetown as an undergraduate, interested in politics. <clears throat> Came to Harvard for an MA in regional studies. So we're uh, uh, glad to have him uh, back with us. And from there, he uh, went on to MIT where he studied with uh, Ed Steinfeld Uh, After getting his degree, he taught for a while at Boston University, and then we were able to recapture him back here at Harvard at the Kennedy School, uh, where Tony Sage uh, made very good use of him and working on energy, environment issues. We had a wonderful program where we trained uh, Chinese bureaucrats, and uh, Ed was uh, uh, attached to that program and did a lot of looking after bureaucrats. So he got to know at a personal level, a lot of that great group of Chinese bureaucrats who have been here and therefore he got a very good feel of those bureaucrats. And then after that, uh, he started this survey about uh, 14 years ago, over 30,000 local officials. They've been uh, surveying those people for 14 years and therefore he has an unusually good, good sense. He, he's worked on issues like energy and environment but he's also had a very deep interest and a very deep personal sense of these bureaucrats who he got to know at a very personal level. I'm not gonna take any more of his time. Uh Ed, yours, but first I wanna have Nick say a word about how we'll connect the questions. Um, hi, so those of you who have been here before know the drill. Um, those of you who are new, welcome. Um, we have at the bottom of your screen, there's the QA and A tab that you can click on. You can enter your question in there. Um, I. should be an option to do so anonymously or um, if you choose not to do so anonymously, please identify um, who you are and where you're affiliated um, so that we know who's asking the question. Thanks.
1: Thanks again. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ezra, for for inviting me and uh, really the opportunity for the opportunity to discuss this uh, uh, public opinion work. So this work um, began really um, at the Kennedy School as a complement to our that executive education training program that you mentioned of government officials that began in the early 2000s. And the goal was really to really inform the, the teaching content and the research with the perspective of Chinese citizens, you know, how satisfied were they with performance of government from from roads and bridges to healthcare, one child policy so um this talk will cover our analysis of the results from those surveys that were executed from 2003 to 2016 and are pretty roughly in in line in terms of the time uh that we ran those uh training programs and and when i say we of course i mean uh tony seish uh, but also uh, uh jesse turial who is one of our postdocs uh, so the three of us um, have been writing an, recently uh, and analyzing these these results, and and we've we've written in China quarterly a piece about a year ago, um, but are now also writing a, a book manuscript. So so hopefully uh, this will be of interest to people, and I look forward to the discussion. Um, In terms of just a quick roadmap, what I thought I'd do is talk a bit about the the link to big, big issues, right? So this survey uh, of the satisfaction of Chinese citizens um, and the link to CCP resilience and that literature. uh, Then talk a bit about some trends that we saw over the years, um, something about the best and worst services, at least from the perspective of those Respondents, um, a bit about the geography of satisfaction. So, where was highest satisfaction growth over this period? And and then a bit why? You know, how do we explain um, satisfaction geography of satisfaction over time? And what does it mean? So, what Uh, sort of transitions, challenges, and, and, and takeaways? So. You know, if you go all the way back you know to Max Weber, uh, who, who often focused uh, on one, one aspect of his writing, of course, was sources of legitimacy and sources of power from the traditional and historical through to the charismatic in terms of leaders and then into the rational or the legal institutions, uh, I think that's you know where Andy Nathan picked up in two thousand and three uh, to write uh, persuasively about authoritarian resilience. Um, And he, as as most of us know, looked at the ways in which the CCP at the time um, was attempting to strengthen that last of Weber's sort of categories, those rational legal sources of legitimacy. And he had examples uh, that were were quite useful around the institutionalization of the system, um, around limits, for example, term limits, leadership succession, uh, normalization, um, meritocratic advancements, instead of uh, factional ties relating to promotion. to promotion, uh, We saw a bit of that uh, within the organization department, for example, and, and Li Yuan Chao and some of his reforms. Uh, more functional specialization, more avenues for political participation. So he had laid that out, and a lot of the uh, empirical um, data uh, around these reforms I think supported that argument. Then what we see, of course, under the Xi Jinping era has been a reversal in many ways, right? An end of obviously presidential term limits um, uh, ended, uh, mer- The meritoc- actually reversed a lot of the meritocratic reforms to cadre management, um, the strengthening of ideology as a guiding force. He you know, has imposed these leading working groups um, in a way to really sideline a lot of the functional professional institutions of the party and the state that have been built up over time. And so one of the interesting questions, at least from our perspective is, how do you then explain the fact you know, that, that the CCP at least appears to be fairly resilient? You know, it's moving into its hundredth year, next year of its founding. Um, and what we're more interested in is also, how can we understand that resilience, uh, particularly as economic growth begins to decline um, as it is. And so we are getting more of a new normal in terms of growth rates. I think Liz has done a great job. Liz Perry has has done a great job. Uh, She wrote at one point, you know, will will dwindling political support under conditions of adversity um, spell the downfall of the regime as proponents of performance legitimacy um, and that explanation often predict. Or does the communist regime Chinese the CCP command a level of popular legitimacy that may allow it to withstand? These substantial domestic and global challenges, right, that we all know it faces, and so that's sort of it's it's that it's that nature of question that we're we're trying to to, to address. So, um, so, so I'd like to just say a few words about performance legitimacy in particular, right? So, so this is framed often as quite economic, as instrumental, that effectively legitimacy or least satisfaction in support of the. Of the Uh, of the CCP is largely the result of pragmatically being able to deliver the goods. And and historically what that has meant, I think for most people writing about this has been the economic goods, right? Delivering economic growth. Um, What that of course leads to is interesting questions around well, you know, performance is by definition economic performance in particular can wax and it can wane and is cyclical. And so, therefore, is that inherently an unstable source of legitimacy, or at least of support? And that's often we, uh, why, when you when we see um, Xi Jinping in particular, but also other leaders from the party, what I think that informs and that concern informs their search for complementary sources of support, from historical justification, right through through the uh, obviously having the CCP allow enabling China to stand up through to various forms of cultural appropriation, right? So uh, under certain conditions, uh, people, writings of Confucius, for example, are uh, certainly uh, are, are out of fashion and actually attacked these days as coming back uh, as a as a form of legitimacy um, uh, source. Promotion of nationalism, of course, and, and also coercion. Uh, People like Marty White, as scholars like Marty Wright, of course, here at Harvard um, and, uh, and a range of other surveys have suggested that um, through a combination of these different sources, what they see is that in the end, there really doesn't seem to be any type of upward pressure or any type of social volcano um, that the, those who have been left behind by economic growth, so lower income groups, for example, people living in rural areas, uh, that w- w- there's not much evidence that these individuals, um, these groups in society uh, are so um, dissatisfied that their, um, that their support is waning of the party. And in fact, they, they report through often like one year surveys or shorter surveys, sometimes in rural areas, sometimes in often in urban areas, uh, that in fact satisfaction is, is increasing over time. Other scholars like Yang and Zhao, for example, have stressed the importance of social policy to say that in, in, in effect, what's happening is the CCP has not only through a diversification of different sources of legitimacy um, and not only through pure economic goods or the delivery of economic growth, but more importantly, through social policy have been able to um, maintain such support, uh, from large swaths of the population. And and that is one of the the driving logics of why we see the CCP as resilient or seemingly as resilient as it seems to be. So then to just jump to our survey, what we did was um, over eight waves in 14 years, we analyzed results uh, of these face-to-face interviews of uh, over uh, 31,000 respondents. It was a, just quickly, it was, a, uh, it was not randomly selected. The, select, the sites were not randomly selected in 2003. It was, it was what was termed a purposive stratified sample, meaning we, we took ages 16 to 60. We then looked at, we wanted, we were interested in different levels of government, what people thought of different levels of government. And so we had three different levels of city, township um, and village. And we picked different sites uh, based on geographical location, average uh, per capita income, population, um, and making sure they varied obviously in those all three variables, but also representing therefore lower middle income, middle income, upper middle income, but also many regional uh, variation. Um, But the respondents were then randomly selected um, uh, through neighborhood committee lists. So what's interesting and important to note is what also is not covered. So while this is is incredibly long uh, in terms of a longitudinal survey and has a lot of uh, respondents, it does not include ethnic minority populations that have different policies in terms of how they're governed. Um, let's say around, for example, uh, one child policy uh, does not include migrant worker populations who often lack legal access to many of the public goods and services that were being surveyed. Um, And then sadly, of course, it ends in 2016 um, and uh, hope springs eternal that that it will be able to be run in the future. But of course, uh, given the current conditions, um, these types of surveys are quite difficult and and therefore it it ends. And and, and I'll get to that uh, towards the end as well, in terms of where where we might be in 2020. just a quick map showing those different areas. So it's it's the survey sites of 22 different locations, Um, basically 22 different locations, 15 larger sort of geographic areas. And then we just sort of split them into two groups for comparison purposes. So that those coastal, more wealthy blue dots, which is we called the core, uh, and then those red dots that are more the hinterland, which we call the periphery. Um, to be able to start making some, some interesting and meaningful comparisons around what uh, different respondents were saying about uh, government performance. So just quickly uh, two, two trends. Um, you know, first, like, like many other surveys um, that, are, that were quite short, that were shorter, uh, what we saw was confirmation that, that respondents in China, Chinese citizens, do continue to disaggregate the state. Meaning they express um, while they express higher levels of satisfaction with the central government, which is what we've seen in a lot of other writing. That satisfaction declines uh, significantly with each lower level of government when you ask them about the performance of each lower level of government. And of course, that's important because it's a lo- as we all know, most public goods and services are provided by the local government. Um, this is is the is the reverse uh, of the U.S., where satisfaction is often higher with local government than with the federal government, for example. Um, in, in 2003, the central government enjoyed a high level of, of relative satisfaction with about 85% of respondents in 2003 expressing approval, and only about 9% or so uh, disapproving of the central government. Uh, what The second point is it is noticeable that across the board, uh, satisfaction levels have risen, right, since 2003. So I'm just showing you 2003 to 2000, uh, 2016. Um, and satisfaction with the central government, which was already high, as I said at the beginning of the survey, rose just a few points, so from about 85-86% to 93%. Um, what What's at the township level, you can see there, uh, more than half of respondents were disapproving of township government. Um, at at, uh, 52% were disapproving in 2003. So more than half were not happy. Uh, And that dropped by about one half. So so what we saw is by 2016, only about a quarter were disapproving and about 70% were satisfied. Just one caveat uh, for for people who are interested. um, And in terms of those headlines, the numbers sound quite high. Right. So, so 93% or so um, by 2016 of people were satisfied with central government. Um, But if you look inside that number that of that 93%, only about 32%, so about a third, were very satisfied, about two thirds were somewhat satisfied. So even though 93% sounds quite high, it's only about a third when you ask them if they're very satisfied or not. Similarly, when you look at local government, so that their um, satisfaction with local government 2016, um, 70% are satisfied, but of that only 13% were very satisfied. Right. So, so you have big swaths of the population uh, that are somewhat satisfied, not very satisfied, just as a, a, a caveat to, to not overinterpret those high numbers. So then what we did is, we tried to understand which server, which services citizens were most satisfied with, and which they wanted the government to pay more attention to. Um, so, what you see here is, first, there are higher levels of satisfaction. You know, if you look at sort of the patterns, there are higher levels of satisfaction with the public goods and services that the central planning system has always been fairly good at delivering. So, water, right, electricity, roads bridges, maintaining social order. Um, What's what's also interesting, though, is, secondly, it's those services that the citizens thought were most important, but where they were least satisfied, that were really those areas that were challenges that were created by the reforms, and that tend to be more household or individual-based. So combating corruption, creating employment, uh, medical services. Uh, So Related to that, I think there's there are other two other points that, that are worth noting. First, uh, and this was quite interesting, family planning often every year we'd see would enjoy the highest marks for satisfaction. So, satisfied with family planning. But that's not that surprising, given that it's a government priority, right, historically. But when we asked, and we sort of ch- did a check on it, and we asked, um, how important it was for government to be involved in that kind of work and in that policy area. The respondents indicated that family planning was not seen as an important task for government. So it's very low in terms of importance uh, and, and for the role of government. And then secondly, when at the time the survey began, uh, environmental health, for example, environmental governance was not seen as highly important. So it was very, very low in the importance um, for government. Uh, as pollution has increased over this period of time, and the government has talked about it much more in terms of the media, citizens have started to view environmental protection and health as critical um, and, are, and are dissatisfied with that work. And I'll get to that at the end in terms of where are some of the cracks that we see uh, in terms of this support and, what, and the relationship between the environment and, and particularly health. So a point around the geography of the data, so geography of satisfaction, uh, it's quite telling. You know, whether you're rural or you're urban, um, if the respondents have reported significantly higher gains in satisfaction in the periphery areas, in those those areas uh, that I showed you in the map um, that were uh, right here. Right So, these peripheral areas that were in, in, in red, so they have a, by far um, larger increases in satisfaction as opposed to their counterparts in those coastal or what we termed core areas and that 's regardless of the level of government as you can see that you 're asking them to evaluate and this is despite the fact that, as we all know, and as Ezra wrote about uh, earliest in earliest times um, this is despite the fact that coastal areas, of course, have received the majority of FDI, have enjoyed the accelerated trade, right, following WTO accession, um, and experienced the most economic growth through the modern reform period. Um, yet we see the, 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 the largest increases in satisfaction happening in, the, in those peripheral uh, periphery areas. And again, you can see whether it's urban or rural, you see the same, the same, the same pattern. And you also see the largest increases happening in terms of satisfaction with the performance of the local government, county, town governments, right? Also, what's interesting is even in coastal regions, we see that it is the low income respondents, right? So this is showing you red is low income, pink is high income. So it is the low income respondents who report the largest gains in satisfaction Um, And you can see where they really are, it's at the county and town levels of government, so at the local level of of government performance. Um, So what we, so after looking at taking those sort of quick um, cuts at the the data, what we did is we tried to, we basically hypothesized, right, saying, were these results, um, do they attest to to the impact of government policy, particularly social policy uh, that redirected more support and resources to those areas that have not developed so quickly, um, such as reviving, for example, the the cooperative medical insurance scheme in the countryside, you know, where basically coverage had collapsed to two or 3% in the 1990s, um, or providing minimum living support payments to low-income urban dwellers. So that's what sort of interested us. Well, how can we we figure out um, what's driving these changes and these significant satisfaction increases? Uh, particularly in the periphery, but also in um, coastal low-income uh, populations. So what we did is we added a whole range of macroeconomic data to the to the analysis to try to figure out those those relationships. Um, and what what we found, which which at least to us was was interesting, was that there were if you when you when you when you do the multivariate analysis, it was really three key. Um, variables that mattered and that exhibited a significant and positive relationship with government satisfaction, right, by And the first was spending as a percentage of the local budget on education, health and welfare. The second was spending on road infrastructure and the third was the ratio of urban-rural disposable income uh, inequality. And what was interesting is when you also, when you take away those variables in the analysis, right, so they're controlled when they're in, when you take them out, the, the income, right, so the low income that, that we're seeing, that effect of low income people uh, experiencing much higher rates of satisfaction. So that effect and the region effect, right, where the peripheral regions we're seeing increases in satisfaction largely disappear, right? So that suggests that much of the observed variation that we see in relative satisfaction is due to those actual flows of government-provided goods and services. So <clears throat> when you go back to the literature and then look, that the, this, uh, these results do support the findings of, of other scholars, but broaden them in terms of the empirical data in both the time and the geography covered. So people like John Knight and Romani Gunatilaka, for example, reported that uh, perceived income change, you know, over the past five years, was positively correlated with political trust. Uh, people like Bruce Dixon, uh, his colleagues as well, um, found that county-level spending on healthcare and education, social welfare, are all significant um, in terms of satisfaction. Um, but particularly in the urban areas where he where he covered uh, his his work covered, um, and Also, the effect of public goods provision on satisfaction is greater at the local level than at the central level, something else that that Bruce and others showed. Uh, And then lastly, Ethan Mickelson uh, in a similar study, but he was measuring perceived rather than actual flows of public goods. He found that there was an association between self-reported improvements in local service provision after China's 2008 stimulus program and an enhanced opinion of, of government officials. Um, Marty again Marty White um, wrote that uh, although a majority of Chinese citizens express concern about disparities for example in income most feel that they can be attributed to variation in ability hard work education rather than any kind of societal unfairness right so that's what Marty wrote in the social volcano and other important uh, work that he did so deeper dives so so, there was, I just wanted to say a few words about um, some transitions and, and what we see when we go a bit deeper into the data. So th- those are sort of the broad trends. Um, first, in terms of that shift from really economic, purely economic, or at least majority economic policy towards a more nuanced social policy and, and emphasizing social policy through increases in resources and delivery, this is a to us at least is an interesting chart that shows 2005 2011. It doesn't go to 2016 just because of the wording of, of the question. So it's it's hard to to um, compare. So this is to, to really be tight and be able to compare uh, apples to apples. It's it's what what's quite interesting when you when you ask these respondents, well, all right, how much how many of you are covered by these different schemes, right? Whether it's you you can see that. For example, pension plans, medical insurance. What at the urban, even down to the village level in 2005, you had a third to about a half um, of the respondents that were covered um, in 2005 in those basic pension, basic medical. They that then dramatically increased, but even just by 2011, six years later, right where you then have around 80 percent or so of respondents that are covered in, in in on those in these two areas. The 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 picture's a bit different when you start getting into into unemployment, into work injury, maternity, housing funds, for example, where the levels were much lower um, in 2005, but but did experience significant growth to the point where, um, for example, unemployment insurance in the city was about 20% in 2005, that doubles at the city level. you see major growth at the town level, right? In unemployment, from one from basically nothing in 2005, two percent to about 20 percent in 2011, um, and also more than a doubling at the village level for unemployment. Uh, so you see over time, not just through the economic data in terms of the amount of money that is spent and where, but also through our survey and who is being covered and coverage ratios, that there's been there's been significant improvement. Um, that's not to say that not to say that everyone's covered. Of course, you you can see that access to none of the above, which is the in red, um, is are still significant swaths of the population um, even in 2011. Not at the city level, where it's only about 11 percent um, said they have access to none of these schemes or n- none of these policies. Um, but even but the town level, 22 percent said responded to access to none. And the village level 13 percent. so so still quite uh important in terms of um uh, that's we can come to that for people who are interested in the poverty alleviation campaign for example and 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 zero absolute policy uh zero absolute poverty um by the end of this year in a few weeks in fact uh, and how that's impacted that um the 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 second point is around just in terms of a deep dive uh, of the three. The second one is related to corruption. This one is is interesting, um, but is something we're still wrestling with to really understand, uh, particularly for the for the for the book manuscript. Because you know, in some ways, the case of corruption shows that even even during periods of increasing overall satisfaction, right, as I as we as we just as I just sort of laid out. Citizen attitudes towards the government's handling of specific issues can deviate significantly. Right? So, by the end of the Hu Wen era, there was a sense that, you know, despite progress in spurring economic development and raising living standards, efforts to promote good governance, particularly through cadre accountability, had stalled or even regressed. And you can see in the in the data. But only a, maybe it was only after. The central government signaled its commitment in the form of a, a real, true campaign, an anti-corruption, a mass anti-corruption campaign, with very real consequences for powerful individuals. That public opinion really begins to shift in a more positive direction, and this is something we're trying to figure out. So, for example, as, as most of you know, by so if you look at that, so if you look at that chart, and you and you you see how people, how respondents. Uh, evaluated the overall cleanliness or uncleanliness, right? So the level of corruption of of government, of local government officials. You can see that in 2007, nearly half, and by 2011, actually more than half, and by 2015, still more than half, viewed them as the majority as unclean or effectively corrupt. And then there's a major shift one year later, by 2016, where it drops from 53% Right, 53 to 29 percent. What's interesting is, as, as, as people know, you know, late 2013, you have Zhou Kang placed under investigation. You have Xu Tai Ho, who was a China uh, Military Commission vice chairman in March 2014, placed under commission. His, another vice chairman of the CMC, Guo Bo, Bo Xiong, um, April 2015, placed under investigation. So you had very senior people. Um, who were in the standing committee or in the CMC who publicly by 2014 and into 2015 had actually been um, arrested uh, and, uh, and a major shift in terms of the way people respondents viewed local government officials and and um, and their corrupt levels by 2016. This is just interesting. I just want to note it for people who are interested. It's something we still are trying to figure out to be honest. So that that that's uh, what, and what's driving such a such a shift the the third point in terms of a deeper dive that that i find very interesting is uh is the environment just given my own interests and also the interests of, of jesse uh, turrell a postdoc who was actually also my my doctoral student at at bu um and this was a shift um like the shift from from economics to from economic policy to social policy from Really government acceptance of corruption to the real anti-corruption campaign drive. this is sort of this is from a complacency uh, government complacency uh, of towards environmental issues to real a true war on air pollution in particular and, and, and an informed public which I think is an important aspect of this. So what when you look at 2016 and our 2016 results, it revealed that respondents were actually most concerned about air pollution with about a third naming it as the most important issue. Then followed by food safety, about 19% saying it's the most important issue. Then climate change, right, so global environmental issue, 16%. And then water pollution at 12%. If you think about, if you then sort differently and look at place of residency, urban dwellers disproportionately are likely to view climate change as the most serious environmental issue, while rural villagers are most likely to be concerned about water pollution. But what I think is most interesting is actually not that. It's more that the results show a clear correlation, which is what this chart is, between daily measured air quality index. So the quality of the air, the actual quality of the air and citizens' perceptions of local air quality on that same day. Right, so that's indicating that subjective assessments of air pollution in China do have a strong basis in reality, in the actual pollution levels. Um, What I think is even more interesting is that it's also negatively correlated with the reported life satisfaction. But here it's about the deviation from average air quality that's critical, not the absolute level. So in other words, these Chinese citizens respondents report increased life satisfaction on days when their local air quality is better than the annual average and decreased life satisfaction on days when the local air quality is worse than annual averages. So that suggests that although people in China are are fairly accurate in gauging local air quality, they become habituated to pollution over time. So, So they only display a response when the measured air quality deviates significantly from typical levels. Um, what's also interesting, I think, on the environmental side, is that respondents who had a negative view of local air quality were also the same respondents who were more likely to give the government poor marks for its handling of government, uh, of environmental issues, right? So we saw that relationship. So for, and we, you know, you, for those who are interested, but you can we can go even deeper into it. So, so statistically, a you know, one-point drop in perceived local air quality produced a 0.08 drop in satisfaction, which is only on a four point scale, so it's it's important. Um, and so it just indicates that ordinary people in China, you know, respondents um, to the survey attribute the problem of pollution, at least in part, to specific human factors, right? So governance, not simply, they don't simply view it as a, a random act of nature or the inevitable price of economic progress. Um, <clears throat> and, and And the perceptions of local air quality are influenced by what they see outside their own windows, right making it difficult i think for local officials to divert blame by engaging in sort of political stunts or controlling access to information um, for example the The, the last thing i 'd just like to mention in terms of this deep dive in environment is is the 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 link to action in particular to um, protests and to uh, complaints. And what what all this is saying to us effectively is by itself really poor air quality, even though it's critical in terms of the way residents view uh, government performance, it does not, you you can't take the next leap which it necessarily leads to widespread citizen action. Only 10% of respondents had ever filed an official complaint or a petition related to air pollution. Um, but two-thirds of those surveyed said that they would consider participating in a hypothetical air pollution protest in their city, but that's just hypothetical. <clears throat> what was also interesting was the respondents were much more likely to lodge complaints or protests if they felt that air pollution had negatively impacted their own health or the health of their immediate family members. That was 30% of the sample, so pretty, pretty large group of, of individuals. Um, The other thing that was interesting, we thought, was that reliance on the internet was correlated with a higher willingness to protest, right? So that suggests that that it is those tech-savvy individuals with more access to independent media sources that are more likely to challenge the status quo when when talking about the environment. Uh, Last two slides. Um, Ezra had asked uh, also uh, before in, in emails about some of the specific conduct of local government officials um, and, and responses. So when asked about the specific conduct and attributes of local government officials, increasing numbers of respondents viewed them as kind, as knowledgeable, as effective over time. So for example, in 2003, more than half of respondents felt that local officials were all talk and were not practical problem solvers. So more than half in 2003, which is pretty damning. By 2016, 55% felt that officials were practical problem solvers, um, while only 30% disagreed with that. Similarly, in 2003, the proportion of respondents who felt that local officials were beholden to the interests of the wealthy was was nearly double the proportion who felt that they were concerned about ordinary people, which you can see there. But by 2016, the situation reversed with over half, about 52% agreeing that local officials prioritize the needs of ordinary people and only 40% or so agreeing that they prioritize those of the, of the wealthy. So that's a pretty significant shift. <clears throat> Other thing that's interesting, there's a lot of numbers I know, which is a bit frustrating on, on a chart. That's why I put those red stars just to draw attention. Um, but for those who are interested, they can look more deeply. Um, when you look at the bottom, for example, um, Impressions of interactions with local officials. Were you satisfied with the eventual outcome? In 2004, about a third were. they said, yes, 31%. By 2016, three quarters were, so 75% satisfied with the eventual outcome. Um, there were still areas where the so specific areas where the support is is not as, uh, as strong. So for example, um, you know, by even 2016 at the end of this, w- these waves of surveys, you know, 44% of respondents viewed local officials as aloof and conceited. Um, um, if you look uh, and you keep going down, for example, uh, it's still a third view them as talk only, uh, all talk, no, 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 go effectively uh, 40% as I said, beholden to the interests of the wealthy. <clears throat> um, 42, 43% concerned only with pleasing their supervisors, so upward really management. Uh, and what I found to be also quite revealing was some of the biggest progress we saw in the data, but also in the, in the broader data, but also in, in what you're looking at here is real progress in um, the imposition of illegal taxes, tax collection, where you're seeing that people have a significant shift where originally many local government officials were viewed as uh, the, the, the key conduits to the imposition of illegal taxes and fees, <clears throat> or even legal fees like the agricultural tax. And by, by th- removing the agricultural tax, removing many of these, these fees, <clears throat> you see a real shift in the way, in a positive shift of the way that people, uh, respondents viewed local government. So finally, takeaways, these are just a, a few. I just want to reiterate that while the numbers sound large, 93% satisfied with central government by the end here in 2016, again, only a third are very satisfied, two thirds are somewhat satisfied. If you look at uh, same numbers for the township level, uh, 70% are satisfied, but again, only 13% are very satisfied, uh, 50, 57% somewhat. I thought it was important just to reiterate that that citizen perceptions of governmental performance respond most to real measurable changes in their material well being and particularly health and that's what we in that China quarterly piece and other writing that's what we spend a lot of time looking at. Um, And in particular perceived threats to the health of the individual or their family members is a specific area in which we saw see a link to protests and to petitions. Um, Lastly, the. What we, what we think about in terms of moving forward that, that as a potential uh, point of concern is if, if provision of public goods and services um, depends upon effective governance, um, it also depends upon adequate fiscal revenue. So debt, sure, debt at the local level can always be increased uh, given lack of capital account convertibility, but the declining economic growth in China may begin to undermine the second capacity particularly if the government, for example, the central government begins to truly uh, put put more restrictions on the ability of local governments to to issue bonds and things of that sort. So there's just a question there, I think, around, um, around the ability to continue. The other is, we think the survey raises an important question around just can authoritarian regimes enjoy greater citizen satisfaction, particularly through public good provision than other systems and therefore enjoy higher levels of support. Um, I think, given time, I think well, I'll, I'll leave it there, Ezra, and, and, and turn it over to you.
0: I think that's a terrific presentation, Ed, and very informative. Uh, let me start out by taking one step backward and trying to be big global, uh, How what I t- take away from my, my takeaways. Yeah. One is that, The government did a very good job uh, between those period of time, 2003, 2016, uh, in providing education, uh, health, and welfare expenditures. And that was appreciated by the local people. And that had uh, a big uh, change in their attitude toward local officials too. Right. That was uh, sort of one big uh, takeaway. And another uh, takeaway uh, is that um, perhaps the um, uh, coming of Xi Jinping and the attack on uh, corruption, as I looked at your chart, that seemed to be a big turning point. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, since then, uh, there has been a recognition uh, by the public that there was great progress made in uh, uh, dealing with the corp- corruption issue uh, is that uh, yes is that the correct yeah. understanding That's your the situation mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> the third is that that uh, the overall concern uh, about uh, air pollution and uh, environment is now becoming more relatively more important mm-hmm. um, is that because of an increase in those problems or do you think it's a it's a relative increase in attention to those problems? Right. Yeah, wait, wait. So
1: that's and a lot of people ask us that and, and that's something that we're addressing in the in the in this sort of book manuscript, because it, it's it's a lot of it relates, of course, to how you measure um, the amount of attention the government has paid. Right. So what is the role of propaganda? What is the role of media? In driving public opinion so one of the things we're doing now for example is is uh aggregating that type of data around around money spent in terms of at the local level um through which media uh, through different media channels <clears throat> around so that we can start to answer the question of the extent the exact extent to which um the extent possible the these shifts in opinion relate to the environment relate do, do they relate more to the fact that the government has willing has recognized the the scale of the issue and has allowed individual allowed respondents to be able to understand that this is something that is politically um, acceptable right, in terms of it is a it is an issue that has been identified it is an issue that the government has prioritized and therefore it is important right and to what extent is it, uh, it, it the impact that they're seeing directly. On them on their own lives, right? So because because there's other intervening variables like that, right? The, the propaganda, state media. Right. So I can't we can't answer it quantitatively yet because we, we're we're gathering that other data.
0: Well, also, uh, you know, if you think about the growth of heavy industry, uh, the, the number of uh, tons of iron and steel that are produced sure. are using coal, um, how how do the the recognition of the importance of environment court does that correlate pretty much with the increase of in reality uh i mean that would in a way uh, give partial answer to the question of whether it's from subjective attention and to what do you have a yeah a i seriously yeah. view of whether what's the reality of how much that problem has gotten more severe and did that correlate with the public opinion yes.
1: good yeah so, so what, what we saw was people habituate to the levels of air pollution. So, so as they, as it worsens, people are not only aware that it's, it's worsening, um, but actually fairly, so they're fairly, um, they, they, they can objectively understand that it's worsening, but in terms of their, their, uh, their focus on whether it's a problem to them, it's, it's not the absolute level. It's how is it compared to the, 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 the annual average? Right. So now as the as, for example, as so as pollution now has increasingly been resolved, um, which even many people who are very focused on the energy sector actually surprised in some ways at at the level of progress, given the complexity of the challenge, as that is, as that has improved in terms of air pollution we're talking about, um, you you have seen that over time, they have also started to habituate because the 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 deviation between the, the annual average and what they see every day is also declining, right? So that there's less and less of, of a deviation.
0: The second question I have is methodological one. Yeah. Uh, when you do comparisons like this, then how truthful people are uh, is not a really an issue because you're getting relative changes in your sample. Right. And so that clearly tells us something. Yes. Uh, the question, of course, a lot of us have is uh, when you pass out questionnaires in China right. uh, how cautious are people about saying things critical of the government, and uh, how what kind of uh, methodological tools did you use that yep. to try to reduce the risk uh, that uh, people are just uh, paying attention? Uh, to what the, uh, you know that the they're being cautious about criticizing the government
1: yeah good yep yeah. so that, that's another one we often get yes um one way we so yes you're right in terms of we're looking at change over time right so that's one way to deal with that issue but the other the other important issue is the only thing we can there's only a few things you can do one is you ask other questions right that's why we spend so much time and effort asking around importance how important is it that government is working in this area, so that so I use the example of one-child policy just as a as a way to get at that, <clears throat> so they're so that they can get through the point that um, even if they're satisfied, they don't think government should be involved, right, in that type of an, uh, of, a, of a policy area. And I think that's another example to your previous uh, question about the environment, where. One child policy is a known factor. It's been it had been there for so many years that people understood there was a priority and therefore they said they were satisfied, but they didn't think it was important that government should be involved. So it's a way for them to um, indirectly show um, uh, Their 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 um, questioning of whether government should be involved. So that's one way we did it. Yep. Yep. I was gonna say, the, the, sorry, the, and then the, the, the other way to get at that question is there actually is more and more written around sort of survey methodology and specifically bias. Um, wh- one of the things that's interesting is also how censorship really works in China, and and I think what, one of the one of the critical ways is really self censorship, not always at not at the individual level, but self censorship through um, publications. Right. So so taking the, the, the taking the actual data and then writing about it and self-censorship of platforms, whether they're media platforms, publication platforms, rather than necessarily the at the individual level. Because again, when you and, I, and we're going to do it differently in the book where we're gonna have, I think, a whole chapter on this, <clears throat> there's actually a lot of negative, there's a lot of low levels of satisfaction in many more than half responding with, to uh, evincing very low levels of satisfaction. So if there were if it were, if it were purely just check the box in a face-to-face interview, then it would be how, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, we probably wouldn't see such low levels of of dissatisfaction.
0: uh, You know, when the Russian Research Center at Harvard got his big start, Alex Inkelis led a huge survey of refugees from the Soviet Union. And what he argued in the presentation of the results at that time, was that he would not talk about levels of satisfaction or dissatisfaction? he would use the data to do comparisons within the sample to yep. show what parts of samples go up or down or where the differentials were, mm-hmm. which is something uh I think is unassailable in your in your research i mean uh you, you can't have doubts about those comparisons i mean that's that's solid yep. data. And I think you're you're making a distinction high levels of satisfaction and lower levels is an interesting one right. too, uh, and uh, that therefore these comparisons between uh, samples and over time uh, are really are very informative and very solid. Uh, I have one more question, then I'll uh, let some of the other people's questions come through. And that is, uh, you said that uh, from 2016 2020. You haven't been able to do the surveys, right? Uh, you have some contacts with people in China, and some of the people uh, you know that you've uh, been helping in the, with surveys. Uh, what would you guess are some of the kinds of changes between two thousand sixteen two thousand twenty?
1: Yeah, um, I, what we what we think is so. These are all. This is all just. Uh, in many ways, uh, you know, in, in, in semi-informed um, guesses, of course, but but what we, when we when we've talked about it within our group a lot. Um, on, on on the one hand, we we assume what we would see is particularly on the in the urban uh, in terms of urban respondents versus rural respondents that be given the the increased focus um, on self-sufficiency and on, for example, redirecting um, redirecting the economy uh, more towards consumption, which has been a long-term, of course, focus, but has been even brought into more, uh, sort of been highlighted more given trade tensions in the United States. <clears throat> that, 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 that combination of, of, a, of a real push towards consumption uh, to drive the economy and towards increased promotion of, of, of nationalism, um, that in, in many ways, we, ex- we would expect this survey uh, the way it's designed to to reflect um, really kind of two things. One is that for urban residents, um, their relative satisfaction with government performance may may start to decrease, um, given the fact that it's so difficult for consumption to make that shift to consumption. Um, so that's one one issue. And the second is when you look at the the, the rural areas. Um, and this sort of gets to these, these other questions around, around financial um, and, and financial concerns and debt, <clears throat> whether whether there's uh, That whether social policy, because there has been some weakening of social policy in certain areas, whether that we would assume that would also weaken some of these satisfaction levels. Um, to date. So those are sort of the two of the ways we think the, that there actually may be a weakening occurring. But again, we don't know without without uh, the data. Um, one um, of the one, yeah
0: one just one last thing go ahead Bye. uh so start with some of the questions this is a question uh from uh Yang lin uh he says he comes from a small village in china as a graduate student in the united states and he wonders uh how did you, uh, you survey in rural areas since a lot of people uh, don't know, even speak Mandarin, and the literacy levels of some of the people are not high. So, yep. how did you uh, do the survey work in the most remote uh, areas where you connected your work? Yep,
1: that's a good. That's a good point. And, and there's a lot of challenges actually related to surveys, as a, as people know. Um, one is on literacy. Literacy was not an issue in the sense that it, they were face to face interviews, right? So, so they weren't, weren't uh, the, that, that was a way to get around that. Um, and in terms of the dialects you say,
0: about the interviewers?
1: I'm sorry, Could the you enumerators. Can you about the interviewers? Yeah. So the enumerators were trained. So they were um, employees of the research company that we, that we uh, partnered with effectively. <clears throat> and they had been there and trained. Um, for had been trained by that by that company, um, and when there were dialect issues, they, they had di- they had dial- they had interpreters to deal with that although although again that was less of an issue because of this of the of, when you go back to the map of the areas we, we were in right so there was more of an issue in the southwest, it was less of an issue in the center, less of an issue in the northeast but yes they, that, that, that's how they dealt with it.
0: OK, um, here is uh, one from Matt Chitwood, uh, Institute of Current World Affairs. Uh, he has a couple of questions. The first one is, uh, why does the Communist Party prioritize area, uh, these efforts in rural areas? To, uh, th- this isn't exactly a survey question. It's a question about the, the background of the people who made those decisions. Um, do you, do you, uh, Maybe it's not a question for the survey, but in your own general sense, is uh, the reason because of the political legitimacy, is the social stability, uh, and and do those years two thousand three to sixteen uh, correspond with the the real emphasis on getting some of those backward areas? Is that the time period when that was the critical policy?
1: Yes. So good. Uh, the, uh, good. Great question. Uh, and I get in the really the that China Quarter article I think goes into depth on this issue. So so yes, the, the, yes, absolutely. That are it just happened to be that the that the the, at the start of that survey in 2003 very much coincided with um, this shift uh, of in particularly as who when took over to shift towards, um, and as most people know, in terms of elite politics and and looking at rhetoric, but also in terms of actual policy, which is what we lay out, a shift uh, away from urban elite priorities to much more the rural, um, and not only rural, but rural and low income priorities. And so, yes, that's why, and it wasn't by design, it was just happenstance that the the survey began with, with that shift. I think that shift, the shift happened on, on for, for many reasons. One was, <clears throat> as most people know, you know the Gini coefficient, China's Gini coefficient um, was, was dramatically, uh, was, was shifting to a point where it was even worse than the United States uh, at certain points, um, and particularly in the mid of the 2000s. And so part of it was a signal, was, was, that was a signal of the importance, um, uh, the, the ways in which economic reforms were impacting the lower income and the rural areas, <clears throat> um, so that was I think that signal was critical and was part of this shift as around uh, focus on stability. Um, but I think the other was uh, also recognition that precisely, and this is what you see in some of the writing, um, that there, that economic growth is cyclical. And, and so you saw several reports coming out concerned about that issue and, and the inherent instability. Um, so I think there was, it, was, it was not necessarily simply social stability, but it was also political stability and, and, and linking, you know, hitching the wagon to, to simple economic cycles was probably not the most, uh, you know, uh, durable uh, strategy.
0: I, I, this is a kind of off the wall question about the applicability of different kind of system. As
1: yeah. you
0: know, uh, currently in the United States, there's a new recognition uh, that income inequality has increased in the last uh, few years. Uh, and as you think about the methods that China has used uh, to make that progress from 2003 to 2016, um <clears throat> what would you advise <clears throat> A different system like the United States uh, to approach that issue. I mean, uh, uh, are there lessons that you've learned about that system, and uh, knowing what they did during that period, that you think would be applicable to very different kinds of systems?
1: Okay, yeah, that's a big one. I mean, <clears throat> it's something. So Tony, Jesse, and I have talked a lot about this in 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 uh, in relation to the poverty alleviation, for example, um, and uh, campaign. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the, I think a lot of people often take the we, we take the wrong um, lessons, right? To look at, well, the CCP was able is, is, has reduced um, poverty, which is true, of course, <clears throat> as you know six seven hundred million people, however you want to measure it. Um, but the argument is often through government policy, um, meaning through a lot of these. Um, schemes that I mentioned. And while that's true, of course the, the, the particularly in, in the 2000s, when you really look at originally, like a lot of your work, Ezra, if you look at the reform, early reform period, much of the actual um, solution around dealing with poverty alleviation was simply the, 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 the basic shifts they made, right? In terms uh, well, from household responsibility to several, to many others. <clears throat> and shifting factor inputs, uh, prices. So the, those policies t- to to reform the market, I think, were quite critical and more critical than a lot of the, 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 the more mandated policies that I think a lot of people today focus on. So I think that's sort of an important point to remember, <clears throat> given how extreme the sort of command economy had been set up before. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to compare in that sense because... In some ways, China, I think, lived out the experiment of by 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 unleashing the market in, in, in an imperfect way. Um, they were able to, of course, solve many of these um, poverty issues, but then they ran up against the, the inherent bias the inherent bias of, of market mechanisms, and lack and, and and had not yet had not used social welfare um, support systems. Not invested adequately until 2000, 2003, 2004. So, you know, in some ways, I think for the United States, um, we we've sort of I think we're learning the similar lesson that w- when you when you when you underinvest in um, the ability, for example, to to train um, retrain um, groups who have been uh, who have who have felt the brunt of whether it's technological change or whether it's in increasing efficiency through automation, <clears throat> lots of other ways in which trade um, uh, and globalization affect labor markets. I think really what the, the lesson is that the U.S., of course, has dramatically uh, reduced those types uh, of, of at the local level <clears throat> investments, um, and that's why I think why Biden, the Biden administration is is sort of rightly now focusing on how do those buffers, how do those, how do we create those buffers. To the shocks that have, you know, that that many have felt in in the U.S. economically, which is separate from the bigger issue around racial equality uh, and other types of uh, of inequality.
0: Uh, here's imagine. a question from uh, Ife Sun. Um, it's uh, he says, I'm wondering if you considered that um, satisfaction is sometimes something very personal that has to do with expectation, personal expectation. Sure. Um, and I, I, I guess yeah. uh, you know one of the the uh, questions that might follow from that is uh, now that people are more satisfied and they have a higher basis, right. uh, you know, will the next generation uh, would you expect to, to have as high levels of satisfaction because in a way they're, 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 they, things have not exceeded. Their their pre- present expectation would that be your expectation?
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is a, another issue. Of course, we talk about a lot. So, so you know, the, it's 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 the reject the rejection of kind of any meaningful you know, political reform. You know, we would we think would indicate that that absent significant coercion, you know, the administration will remain increasingly reliant on. Um, on ensuring the satisfaction, right, via the provision of these public goods and services. So, so, for us, sort of the importance of understanding satisfaction has never been more important, and might even be critical to analyzing Chinese governance and resilience moving forward. Which is why we think it's an important um, topic. <clears throat> the we all and yes, it's true that they're like going back to the previous question you had. Since there was such a gap in economic performance from seven, pre-78, in some ways, although you, give, you give, we have to give incredible you know, credit, obviously, to the party to be able to do what it did, it was much easier to, to create, to overcome that gap initially uh, than it is moving forward. Similar with satisfaction, there was a significant gap as well that's been closed and so, yes, moving forward, is it relative? It is relative. Um, people do have increasing demands. We see it even in the, our data the last few years, where you can see a shift in some of their priorities that are much more related, again, to the to those specific household issues as opposed to general infrastructure issues. So, yes, that that's it is a concern. I think moving forward.
0: Uh, here's a question by Tom Remington. He says the latest book by Terry Secular Leasure and Sacco incorporate estimates of the incomes of the very high income group at the top into their estimates of inequality. They come up with much higher final Gini figures, uh, very similar more to the United States. What what evidence is there that awareness of the top 1% is widespread among the population, Chinese population?
1: Oh, uh, so awareness of, I guess the question is, awareness of inequality among the
0: 1%? Uh, I'll just read you what he said. What evidence is there that awareness of the top 1% is widespread among Chinese population? Uh, in other words, I guess, among the general population, yes. I see. About, about, Are they aware of that, the, the high levels? Of about income? the gap. Yeah. Right,
1: about the gap. Right, right, about the relative gap. Got it. Right. Um you know, so when when you when you look at questions, when you look at other surveys, which is what we're doing now, right? To compare and you look at other surveys, um, you like Marty, like Marty's White's survey as an example. Um, you, you, it is you can see that people that the respondents in those surveys um, are very much aware of the gap, but they don't ascribe that gap to um, some systemic problem. They ascribe the gap to hard work effort, uh, and, and intelligence and levels of education. So that, so if you look at other writing, including Marty's, that's why it militates towards arguments saying, well, it's really not an issue. It's not a source of instability because people, um, are not blaming the system for that gap in, in, in many ways, at least in our experience, right. Um, and this is because this, because we didn't, we didn't, uh, ask that specific question in, this, in this, these these waves. But when it, and many of you, I think, who live in China have had this similar experience where uh, I, I tend to agree in, in, with what Marty and others have written that most individuals you speak to at different levels of society um, often are, uh, continue to ascribe it, uh, not that, that gap, not towards systemic problems, but towards their own um, lacking uh, qualities if they're lower, uh, on the on that in that system, or the presence of those qualities, if they're higher in the system, so I that's I, I don't think that's changed dramatically. Awareness.
0: Uh, here's a question by Charlie Wong: Your survey does not include the view of migrants, who numbered perhaps in excess of two hundred million. Yeah. In your opinion, uh, and this may require some guesswork, yep. but how would you view the effectiveness of? Uh, the central or local officials over time, and the impact of the, uh, of the virus uh, on the employment and welfare uh, this year. Uh, I don't know whether you want to make any guesses about what, how the migrants might have answered this, and no. then also uh, what are these uh, changes over time? Excuse yeah. me. No
1: problem. So um, yeah, so so we we yeah we this is something we have definitely talked about obviously in terms of the migrants. Um, and, and what we would hazard, first of all, there are surveys that, that ha- like people like Pierre Landry, for example, and others have looked at, um, have done GPS-enabled surveys, right? So they, they have included uh, migrants uh, in, in shorter periods of time, more recently. <clears throat> what you tend to see, uh, at least from what we've looked at, is migrants, uh, in a way, sort of surprisingly, have fairly positive um, points of view vis-a-vis government and government performance, um, often because of efforts to, to reform the hukou system and to try to attempt to serve their needs in a way that's better, at least re- in relative sense, than it was at the beginning, uh, sorry, early 2000s. <clears throat> so that's sort of some of the evidence that's, that has, from what we've seen, that's emerged from those types of surveys, um, which in some ways was surprising initially, but then when you start thinking about it, it kind of makes sense. Because in relative terms, their lot has improved um, when they were, compared to when they were really locked out completely of the system. Um, so that's sort of one way of thinking about that issue of migrants. Um, the uh, in terms of your other issue, in terms of COVID and the impact of COVID, there it's 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 interesting because <clears throat> first of all, the, and I've been sort of wrong in this. I, I thought I did. I thought the impact economically would be larger and immobility would be higher. Than it has been, um, so the the economic impact was more muted than I think, at least for me and others who, who I speak with and 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 read thought. Um, but what it but what it has done, of course, has followed the same pattern in terms of disaggregating the state. So when it first hit, <clears throat> there was significant uh, negative um, reaction uh, from uh, people online, at least. And in, in in the media, Chinese Chinese respondents, citizens, <coughs> about the the response of, of government, and so they they were blaming the local government, uh, disagreeing state blaming local government for the outbreak. Then by the time Beijing responded, and you saw significant lockdowns in Wuhan and other in Beijing and other areas, then you saw a dramatic shift where 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 respondents um, to other uh, surveys and also to, to, in just in terms of media, where people began to really support the central government and were highly satisfied with that response. So you sort of saw that evolution right there uh, and the disaggregation that we see even in our data.
0: Another uh, uh, question here has to do with uh, whether you could say something about regional differences. I mean, you analyze uh, the size of place, uh, but... Um, uh, you are, I noticed in the beginning, you make uh, in your map, you have some coastal and then some more inland. Uh, can you make some general response about coastal versus inland? And the question right here says, is there a difference between north and south? Uh, he says in the cities in the uh, north are declining, while those in the yeah. south are increasing urban areas in the south. Uh, so do you see differences between cities in the north and south? So, uh, the, the two big, the coastal versus inland and then north and south. Are...
1: Yep. Good. Uh, great, great questions. Uh, yes. So that's sort of the second level underneath terms sort term of geography, uh, sort of the geography of satisfaction. That's kind of one level deeper. And it's a good question. So yes. <clears throat> do we see sort of a, a, a rust belt effect to some extent? Yes. So the Northeast you see, um, Compared to the Southwest, uh, uh, suppressed satisfaction, so lower satisfaction. <clears throat> yes, although we don't, we don't want to get too hooked into. You don't want to. That can also be over. Um, I think we have to be careful because um, of the of the 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 number of locations. So the 22 locations. We I I would be more comfortable if there were many more locations in the Northeast versus the Southwest to truly do that type of a micro. Uh, analysis of, 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 let's say, prov- provincial disparities. So we don't really have, even though it's 31,000 respondents, it's really 22 locations. So I, I think we'd be, if you had more locations, you could be more granular in in, in what's driving that question. Um, but there is, yes, there is a sort of rust belt effect that, that in addition to the, um, the, the 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 broader periphery core uh, effect.
0: Um, so, so what about new urbanization, uh, say in, uh, the uh, uh, new urbanization uh, from uh, growth of uh, urban areas in the south
1: yes and so yeah so so you you see that over time you know in the survey that oh that as as those, the provision of public goods and services uh, increases particularly as the 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 um, some of the but again, this is not in not in our data because because our data the the, the locations that we chose that were chosen were not did not change like you you don't see urbanization uh in on mass because they 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 weren't the jurisdiction for example didn't shift <clears throat> but when you look at other surveys, other research that, that where you actually see urbanization occurring um in a, in a, in a jurisdiction shifting from village to township to county you know Uh, onward up this up the ladder to municipality um the because of the increase in investment um you 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 do see increases in satisfaction particularly not related to again to infrastructure but specifically around unemployment so the economic buffer so unemployment insurance medical insurance those areas is where you you see um significant satisfaction increases uh yes uh
0: i'm afraid our time is coming to edit uh, to an end, Ed, uh, but uh, it's been extremely informative, and uh, we're lucky to have such broad, big survey of data. We've got enough funds to uh, get such a huge sample uh, and uh, to uh, give us the results of your sample. So, thank Thanks you everybody. very much. You. Okay, we'll I'll have you back again. Good to Bye-bye. See you.